Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, regarded as the prince of preachers and the last of the Puritans, delivered a sermon in July of 1885 which he entitled, A Jewel from the Revised Version. Spurgeon usually preached from the the authorized, or what's known as the King James Version, but on that occasion his text was from the Revised Version of the Bible. And what was his text that morning? Well, he preached from 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. And in the, in the King James authorized version, that text reads this way. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children or the sons of God. But the revised version like most of our modern translations, adds four little assuring words to the words of the King James. And the four little assuring words were these, and such we are. So when you put it all together, you get this, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God, and such we are. And it was those four little words that became the, the subject of Spurgeon's message, which he entitled, A Jewel from the Revised Version. This morning, I want to reverse what Spurgeon did, and draw your attention to what I'm calling a jewel from the authorized or King James Version. And I'm referring to some words in the the text of the King James which have become footnotes in most of our modern translations. The words I'm referring to are to be found in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6 and verse 13. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Why have these words been omitted from the the body of the text of most of our our Bibles? Well, Well, it has to do with manuscript evidence. Scholars have concluded that because all of the earlier and best New Testament manuscripts omit those words, they've concluded that they were probably not part of the, the, the original text of Matthew's Gospel. Be that as it may, I am I, personally inclined to uh, uh, conclude with Philip Ryken, who wrote, What could be more biblical 
than ascribing the kingdom and the power and the glory to God. For how did David pray? And he refers us back to that portion of God's Word which was read in our hearing some minutes ago. That prayer of David in 1 Chronicles 29, where we hear these words, Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty for everything in the heavens and on earth belongs to you. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom, and you are exalted over all, for everything comes from you, and we have given you only what has come from your hand. Now you think about the words of this prayer of David. What led him to burst forth into these words of doxology as he prayed. What was, the, what was the context of his prayer? What was the context of his prayers? It was simply this. The glorious fact of the Lord's generosity to his people, enabling them to give wholeheartedly. God had so blessed His people that they could give freely. And because of God's great generosity, David bursts forth in doxology. So what was it about the Lord's prayer that led our Lord to break forth into these words of doxology? Recorded for us there in Matthew 6.13. Or once again, we see a parallel with David's prayer. Because in our Lord's prayer, we're confronted with the, the glorious fact of our Lord's generosity to His people. In that prayer... The generosity of our Father in heaven as He would give to us all of our daily provisions. Give us this day our daily bread. His glorious generosity and grace in bestowing pardon upon us for He forgives us all of our sins. The great generosity of our God in protecting us, leading us not into temptation. And so it was like with David of old that our Lord burst forth into doxology because of God's generosity. And therefore, it is those words, that jewel, that are not simply a, a part of history, but words which are filled with hope. For that doxology sparkles and shines and brightens the path ahead for every believer, assuring us that, that though we be confronted with pandemic, though we be confronted with international uncertainties, though we as the people of God be confronted with ungodly acts of parliament, nevertheless, this is our song. This is our hope. Thine is the kingdom. 
and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So what do these words in this doxology imply for us this morning? Well, my first point is simply this. We see here the absolute majesty of our Father in heaven. The absolute majesty of our Father in heaven. Yours is the kingdom. In other words, our Father in heaven is in total control of the events of history and the end of all history. He is the one who knows the end from the beginning. And furthermore, he is the central figure in the whole drama of not only redemption, but he is the whole central figure of the whole drama of the universe. For, says the Scriptures, from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Now, by way of of explanation and illustration, think with me for a few moments regarding the prophet Isaiah and words that... I'm sure many of you know well. I'm thinking of Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, says the prophet, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. High and lifted up. As I look at those words, as I look at that text, I I see three scenes. The first scene is this. Isaiah is looking back. And he is looking back at an unguarded figure, King Uzziah. You see, during the 52 years in which Uzziah reigned, Judah experienced expansion, peace, progression, prosperity. But such was the success that the king had enjoyed that pride overtook him, and as you may well remember, the Lord visited him with leprosy. Here was a a man who who failed to guard his own heart. But my point simply is this. Isaiah looked back to a period of stability, to a period of prosperity, to a time where life with its comings and its goings was familiar, usual, normal, somewhat predictable. And some of us here this morning have lived such a a period of time in our lives. When my parents and when we first came out from Northern Ireland in 1952, we came to Australia at such a time like that. It was a time of peace, It was a time of 
prosperity. It was really the, the, the honeymoon period following World War II. Uh, Sir Robert Menzies was a Prime Minister. He had been Prime Minister from 1949 right through to 1966. And here in Victoria, our State Premier, Sir Henry Balty, he'd been Premier from 1955 through to 1972. So politically, economically, there was peace, there was normality. As we look back now, it seemed such a period of innocence. Everything just took its place, took its time, and worked its way out. We look back, and we see a time of peace, prosperity, normality. This was Isaiah. He looked back. But then the scene changes. For he looks out. And he looks out at an uncertain future. Because the king is dead. After all those years, after those times of normality, times of certainty and composure and calm and confidence, but now the level of anxiety is increasing. Fears are coming to the surface. Stress and darkness dull the mind. Blood pressure increases. Questions now come to challenge and to confront. What does the future hold? What will tomorrow bring? Is there going to be for us more riots and, and rebellion? Is there going to be anarchy and activism? Is it going to be, in, in the words of Douglas Murray, the madness of crowds? And what of our personal fears for tomorrow, next week, next month, next year? What happens if our health gives way? What happens if we lose our job? Who's going to look after the family? Uncertainty. An unpredictable future creates tensions and alarm and distress and maybe panic. The prophet had looked back to peace and prosperity. He looks forward, but it's all so unpredictable. Now what's going to happen? The king has died. But the third scene is this. He looks up. He looks up at an unwavering fact. Because let me give you another jewel from the King James Version. And it's just one wee word, one, one little word which is in the King James, which is not in any other version. It's implied, but it's not so apparent. Because you see, in the King James Version, it says, In the year the King Uzziah died, I saw also, also the Lord high and lifted up. It enforces, it draws attention to a clear fact that I did look back and I was looking forward. But while I did that, I also did something else. I looked up and I saw the Lord. I saw the absolute majesty of our Father in heaven. 
that the prophet looks up and he was caused to see the sight the apostle John was to see on that Isle of Patmos. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 2. He looks and he immediately is in the Spirit. And there was a throne in heaven and someone was sitting on it. And who was that someone? The words of verse 9 through 11. Let me just read you a couple of those verses from Revelation 4. Here is the Lord our God, the one who lives forever and ever. And the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, O Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power, because you have created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Our Lord and God, Creator and Sustainer, ruling and reigning over all. The God who is never caught by surprise with what happens here on earth. The God whose wisdom is never found wanting, who is never anxious or alarmed, our God and Father, who has never visited wit's end corner. Our God and Father, who has never been at panic stations. The prophet looks up and he sees the Lord. And the response was, from verses 1 to 7 of Isaiah 6, he confesses his need of this God. In verse 8, he consecrates himself to this God. And then he takes comfort because it's clear from verse 11 and onwards of that chapter that this Lord whom he had now fixed his vision upon, this Lord and God, knew the future. Time was in his hand. And so my question very simply this morning at this point is this. Where are you looking? Are you looking back and just hoping that maybe history will repeat itself and we find ourselves in another period of peace and prosperity? Or maybe you're looking forward to tomorrow, to next week, and you're just not sure how you're going to get through this coming period of time. The black clouds are building up on your horizon. Where are you looking? Or are you looking up? And oh yes, like Abraham of old, we, we need to take and to bear in mind the realities of life and the realities that confront us. But never forget that little word also. Because that little word also introduces us to the real reality. And that is our God reigns. Our God is still on the throne. If you look up, You'll see him there in all his glory and splendor. The absolute majesty of our Father in heaven. But then add to that, 
my second point, the assured adequacy of our Father in heaven. The assured adequacy of our Father in heaven. Because the doxology goes on to say, yours is the power. And how can we describe and define this power? Well, surely, surely it is the, the adequacy of our Father to bring His children safe home that they might be with Him forever. The adequacy of God to bring our salvation to a perfect completion. That that power which was behind Paul's mind when he writes to the Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, that God who has begun a good work in you, He will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. It was in the mind of the apostle as he picked up his pen and writes Romans chapter 8. Now the epistle to the Romans has been regarded as the, the high peak of Scripture. Dr. J.I. Packer in his great book, Knowing God, wrote this, All roads in the Bible lead to Romans, and all views afforded by the Bible are seen most clearly from Romans. And when the message of Romans gets into a man's heart, there is no telling what may happen. Well, if if Romans is the, the high peak of the Bible, then chapter 8 is surely regarded as the high peak of the book of Romans itself. And what causes this chapter to describe and to drive us to see the adequacy of God? What does it tell us about this question of the power of God. Let me, let me simply use the, the, the outline of the, the chapter that Packer gives to us. He divides it into two, and I'm just going to use his headings. And his first point is this, his first division, as it were, of the chapter. It's Romans 8, verse 1 to 30. And here we see the adequacy of the grace of God. Because in these verses, you see God's grace demonstrated to His children in the very gifts that He gives to us. And these verses highlight four remarkable gifts that God has graciously, generously given to His children. The first is His acceptance of us. Because there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Secondly, he has given to us an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, the Holy Spirit, who has come to indwell us. The third benefit or blessing, our privilege. Not only have we been forgiven, we have been adopted into the very family of God. The spirit of adoption. And then fourthly, our preservation. That glorious assurance that we read of from verses 28 to 30. So that in summary, our, our Heavenly Father's grace is adequate to save us, to sustain us, to secure us, 
and to support us all the way home to the Father's house. That's the first point. The adequacy of the grace of God. But then the second part of Romans 8 points us to the adequacy of the God of grace. Verses 31 through 39. The adequacy of the God of grace. And this is proved by a series of five questions. And the answers fully assuring us of that adequacy of God to complete what he has commenced in his children. So let me, let me again simply summarize this, the, the Q&A that you find here. And, and, I, and I have to uh, uh, acknowledge my indebtedness to uh, uh, the simple answers provided here by a pastoral friend of mine who uh, knows my inclination to alliteration. So... Uh, I'll beg, borrow, and steal from anyone who can help me. So here's, here's the question. Let me give you the answer. The first question that, that Paul raises is this. Who can be against us? If God is our Father in heaven, the absolute majesty, who can be against us? The answer, when our Father is invincible. Who can be against us when he is invincible? Question two. How shall he not fully give us all things when our Father's grace is inexhaustible? Question three. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect when our Father's justice is indisputable? Question four, says the apostle. Who can condemn? And the answer, for what our Father has done in accomplishing redemption is incontestable. And then question five, the apostle raises, who shall separate us from the love of God? And the answer, who shall separate us when we and our Father are inseparable? inseparable. Beloved, our Father's love is a function of His omnipotence. And so it is our Father's burning desire to lavish His grace upon us, to bring us home, that we might behold Him in all of His wonder and splendor and majesty and glory. And He is adequate for the task. He is adequate for the task of getting the likes of you and me safe home before the dark. He is adequate for the task because His is the kingdom and His is the power. And therefore, thirdly and finally, His is the glory. The awesome glory of our Father in heaven. And you think of God's glory revealed. The fact that God's creation reveals the, His glory is attested to, is it not, in Psalm 19. That our God made everything 
and maintains everything in existence. And furthermore, he controls everything in its operation. What do I mean? Turn with me in your scriptures to Isaiah 54. Isaiah chapter 54. And I'm reading verses 16 and 17. Isaiah 54, 16. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I've also created the uh, to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servant of the Lord, and their vindication for me, declares the Lord. What's the prophet saying here? What's God indicating here? What is he saying? Well, the beginning of verse 16, the Lord supplies the craftsman with his skill. The second part of verse 16, the creator is the source of the specific way what has been created will be used. And then verse 17, the Creator uses both the craftsman and what is created for His glory. Our God makes, maintains, and manages the end for which everything was created, which is, his own glory. His own glory. And when you stop to think about that, beloved, what words of comfort we find here. That every threat that comes to us comes to us in His world. And they arise and exist by His will. And they're controlled within the region, the realm of His sovereignty. And are designed to achieve His purpose. Which is our good and His glory. So that we're safe. We're always safe. God's glory has been revealed. And God's glory has been restored. Because it has been said, and I quote, the story of the Bible is the story of heaven coming back to this world, taking it over and filling it once again. It is about the revelation and the restoration of God's glory, and that in a far richer and more wonderful way in Christ than was ever seen in Eden or in Adam. What was the writer suggesting here? Well, think with me of the birth of Christ. What was the anthem that was sung at the birth of Christ? Glory to God in the highest. Think of the description of Christ himself. For in him the glory of God was visible. How does John describe him? The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. And then think how Christ summarized his works and his words and his ways. He was able to say, I have glorified you on earth. 
And after his crucifixion and resurrection, he returned to his glory from which he had come with this passionate desire in his heart that, Father, those that you have given me, I long that they may be with me, that they may behold my glory. It's glory from beginning to end, Alpha and Omega, God and the splendor of his glory. And so that all who have faith in him, he will guide us safe home that we may behold him. The words of the psalmist, you will guide me with your counsel and afterwards receive me to glory. And so we are told that Jesus brings many sons to glory. And so we look out on our world with its wickedness and with its wars, with its divisions and with its diseases, with its sin and its shamelessness. And maybe at times we, we, we look and it's so, it's so pitch dark and, and black and depraved that it may appear to us that Satan has won some great victory. But here is history. Here is time and truth in a nutshell. God's glory was displayed. God's glory has been diminished. But God's glory is also restored fully and forever. God's glory revealed. Revealed and restored and realized. Realized. What is God's glory but the outworking or outshining of His perfections? How do we define God's glory but the, the, the accumulative splendor of all of His attributes? And where do we see this glory on display? We see it on display in worship in heaven and His wrath. In hell. And thus, by way of challenge and comfort, let me draw to a close on this note. Like many before us, we face an unrighteous and an ungodly world. Persecution of Christians is worldwide. Christian belief and behavior are the objects not just of ridicule, but of attack. Legal apparatus, society standards, even acts of parliament. And so the question is in these days, how shall we then live? As Christians, how do we live in such a world? We live by not avenging ourselves. Oh yes, we may use whatever legal means at our disposal in a democratic society, but we always leave room for God's wrath. For vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Romans twelve nineteen. And my dear friends, this morning, here, here is the, the frightening, yet faith 
sustaining point. God's wrath, which is an element of His glory. God's wrath and His jealousy for His glory. God's wrath and His judgments are always just and always righteous and always holy. And the Lord will ultimately vindicate Himself and His reign and His rule over all in the punishment of all those who have been His enemies. That God's glory will be manifested and to Him every, every, every knee shall bow. And thus we can be comforted and recognize that it is okay to have the thought that in an evil age like our own, in spite of everything, our God will finally vindicate Himself and His glory, and all the scoffers and sinners of today will receive their just recompense. Do you remember the psalmist in Psalm 73? The psalm where it describes the man who was envious of the wicked, the prosperity of the arrogant. Life was so difficult and tough for him, and he, and he just complained. He was, he was envious of the prosperity and the peace of what the, the sinful were enjoying until, until he goes to church and he learned and understood their end. He says, until I understood their destiny. And that put everything in focus. My dear friends, our Father will right the wrongs afflicted on His children. Our Father will remember the wicked and He will repay. And that's why the message of the church today is this. Flee from the wrath to come. Because it's coming. It's coming in all the splendor and awful glory of our God. I wonder if that's true of you this morning. Have you recognized what your end is that you're living not just for time, but you will spend eternity somewhere. And God is gracious and God is loving, but He's also just and holy and righteous in all His ways. And sin, no matter what form of sin, and no matter who sins, whether it be pauper or prince or politician, the wages of sin is still death and separation from God and hell. And yet in this day, the Spirit of God still says, Come, come believing.
come believing. How shall we as Christians live? With our focus on the absolute majesty of our Father and with our faith in the assured adequacy of our Father and with our future, the awesome glory of our Father being our joy and delight. For even though we live in this wicked world, we say to our God and Father, yours is still the kingdom and the power and the glory, and it shall forever be. Amen. May God bless his word to us this morning. Let's pray together. Oh, our Father, you who are enthroned on high and who lives forever and ever, under the shadow of thy throne, thy sense can dwell secure. And sufficient is thine arm alone, and thus our defense is sure. Be thou our guard while troubles last, and take us safely home, that there may we in glory dwell and worship at thy throne. Hear us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.